While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And every week we take a book that either myself or Andrew has read and we talk about it, um, regardless of whether or not you, the listener, have read it. Uh, maybe you have. Maybe you plan on it. We'll, we'll see how but we that don't goes. But really, we don't really care no. whether you've read it or not. <laughs> well, I think the thing that has yet to happen, which I would love to happen if we were in a situation that... Uh, was favorable to it is if somebody had read these books and they were like emailing us and giving us feedback, that might be nice. Yeah. You mean emailing us at overduepod at gmail.com? Yeah. We can talk about that later. I've gotten some really lovely in-person feedback from, I know from some people I know who are listening, but there are plenty of people I don't know who are listening or people that I'm not sure if they are listening and I would love to just hear from them, but we can talk. Yeah, there are a lot of people on our facebook page that are just like your friends but i have no idea who they are so i assume they're just like people they're just strangers who found our podcast so think it's awesome some of them i know okay some of them are <laughs> maybe it's maybe some of them are strangers who knows but um, you can you can help us solve this this problem by uh, recommending the show to your friends we just wanted to open up front this week with an appeal to you our erstwhile listeners yeah is that the right that, use uh, of the word erstwhile i don't know all right, Here, let me look it up. Well, okay. You, you patter for a second. While you look that up, I will tell you that this week I read Turn of nope. the Screw. Okay, that's I'm not wrong. <laughs> well, I'll, I mean, means former. Our former listeners. Well, Sorry, they're, guys. There probably are erstwhile listeners now because I can't get through the intro without <laughs> worrying about how many of them there are. Um, all right, anyway. So I read. Wait, what is the word I meant? Our I'm l- sorry to keep stepping on your book no, toes. No, no. But- <laughs> get off my book toes. Our long-suffering listeners? Is that what you're thinking um, about? Esteemed. I think I'm, Are, I think I wanted esteemed. Uh, yeah, maybe. What were you going for? Our esteemed listeners, because we hold them high in our esteem. That is true. We do hold them high in our collective esteem. Um, <laughs> moving on? Do you want to move on? Are you ready? I don't know where to go. I've been waiting for you to get ready. Wait, that's not true. You've been looking <laughs> up words and using them wrong in the reverse order of that. Yeah. I'll probably use it wrong again after I've looked it up, but that's okay. It's okay. Okay, Craig, lay it on me. What did you read this week? I read Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Okay, and is this a book about carpentry? No, it is not a book about carpentry or the or woodworking or <laughs> welding or anything like that. It is okay. a ghost story, ostensibly, written in 1898 by Henry James. I don't know a lot about Henry James. That's, that was the one thing I probably could have done more research on for this podcast. Um, but he's written plenty of other ghost stories. He was publishing in the 19th century when... I think this book was written originally as a serial. Um, but he went back and edited it a bunch of times. I would now, probably not while I'm actually working on this podcast regularly, would like to kind of go back and look at an annotated version of this book. Because I'm sure there... I think there are a couple out there that 
break down some of his revisions or how it was published initially because like that informs reading Charles Dickens a lot knowing that each chapter or whatever kind of came out on its own mm-hmm. um, and that's it's not something we think about as, with the novel today but it's something we think about with television a lot like audience reaction and whatnot how that affects stories um, you know I was actually I was talking with somebody about Dickens the other day and um, they were talking about because of because of the way that they were written and because he was like being paid by the word it just meant that his stories often are like unnecessarily wordy. So did you, did you like, did you get any kind of sense of that in this book or did whatever editing he did to it to turn it from a serial into like a proper book? Kind That's of actually really of that? informative. I'm glad you said that because yeah, this book was really <laughs> dense. This book was the verbal equivalent of every loaf of bread I've ever baked. Like it was just the densest thing and i don't like i've read a lot of david foster wallace which is incredibly dense as well but there's something very playful about his density and his verbosity like he knows it um this felt yeah this felt dense for the sake of density so not like my bread because i don't try to make it very dense like that that just kind of (laughs) happens because i'm not a great baker but (laughs) We could just keep going with this bread analogy no, for as long as we wanted, a, I think. Well, it's a decent analogy. I don't want to wear it out. I don't want to ask you to eat too much of my okay your, bread. Your dense bread. It's always pretty tasty. It's just you can't eat much more than like a bite of it at once. Um, so um, why this book? Why did oh, you Why did you want to uh, visit this one in particular? This one, I knew about the book. I had seen a theatrical production of it in college uh, that... I think some people who listen to this podcast might have worked on, uh, so shout-outs to them. But it was interesting, and it, and it was told primarily from the perspective of the protagonist, which we can get into in a second because it's kind of crucial to how the book operates. Um, it was like a every character in the book was rendered by two people, um, which is, you know, that happens sometimes when you're adapting literary tales to the stage. Uh, and then I know that it was shown briefly in lost like on a bookshelf and because everything on lost was purported to have great meaning oh jeez! i remember that when that happened that was like oh what does that mean what is why is he carrying around turn of the screw like that's it's a big thing um what if he what if someone on lost was carrying around like a copy of quicken for dummies or something <laughs> like what would that mean or like a betty crocker book yeah like, Something very... The joy of cooking. Yeah, something that didn't have any sort of thematic implications, and it was just like a thing that they wanted to learn how to do. Yeah. What is, Locke is learning how to sew. What does that mean? Why is Hurley reading James and the Giant Peach? <laughs> is that how they get off the island? He likes peaches. What do you want? Um, and then, I actually, I recently read an article just in the Atlantic, I think, about Turn of the Screw. For some reason, like it was, I don't remember why they revisited it or whatever, um, but as a work of this kind of enduring in enigmatic quality, I want to make sure I use the right form of, of the word enigma. Um, cause we'll get to the heart of that in a second. It is a ghost story, but it can also be interpreted as a, just a psychological thriller, I suppose, um, due to the dubious nature of the ghosts. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. Um, and so that was kind of the article that I'd read was like 
talking up the book in terms of that's why it's had such a long-lasting influence. And I can see actually why that why that would put it on a bookshelf in Lost, because that's one of those works of fiction where the questions are much more important than the answers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess before I let you get... St- or, or maybe let, let's try and segue my question into like how you want to talk about the book. You said before the show, or maybe like on, yeah, I think it was before the show that this would be a shorter podcast. Okay. And the like synopsis of the book that I read is pretty short. But you said that the text itself was like dense. So yes. What is that? <sighs> okay. Well, there, there's a particular <laughs> passage passage that I want to use to illuminate that, but I feel like it requires some plot setup. Can I do that? Okay. Can I yeah, do that? Me Answer this out of order? Yeah. Um, so the, the weird part about the book, it sets up outside of the story. There's a separate, there's like a framing narrative that actually we never return to. So it's only one half of the frame, which is odd, where it's like a bunch of people sitting around in a parlor talking about scary stories. And then this guy, Douglas, is talking to the narrator. and He's like, oh, I have a story for you. And it's totally true. <laughs> I this woman gave me a manuscript. It told, she wrote it down, and it happened to her. I'm gonna mail a key to my office so that a guy can unlock a drawer and then mail it back to me, and I'll read it to you. And everyone's like, "Okay, this better be a good story." <laughs> <laughs> so, what is this like? What are the implications of it having a frame narrative? Like, is it just there to take up space, or is it? I think it might be to call attention to itself as a ghost story. And potentially to lend legitimacy to the supernatural elements of the story. Because I think the question question is, there are ghosts in the story. I'll tell you about them in a second. The question along the way is, did this really happen or not? Mm -hmm. And there's kind of two elements to it. Was this person ever a real person, the person telling the story? And did what happened actually happen to her or did she kind of make it all up? Like, those are the two questions. Um, So it starts off with this kind of, like, Midnight Society meeting where it's like, I've got a spooky story for you. And everyone's like, it better be really spooky. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that tongue-in-cheek. It actually feels very kind of 19th century Victorian dusty, like we're sitting around in smoking rooms and, you know, I don't know. Telling ghost stories. Chomping on cigars and whatever. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But then the setup is there's this young woman, this governess, who gets hired by a man who lives in London to go to this estate that he owns called Bly, B-L-Y. And she's going to serve as the governess to his niece and his nephew, uh, whose parents are dead. I don't remember why. And he doesn't want anything to do with them. He doesn't even want to hear about them. He's like, go there, take care of them, don't even tell me what's going on. I just don't want to deal with it. Okay, that's weird. And she gets there, and it's this big old estate that's kind of spooky, you know. It's a ghost story. And she meets the housekeeper, and she learns... Oh, no, that doesn't happen yet. Okay, so <laughs> the the little boy's name is Miles, and the little girl's name is Flora. Mm-hmm. And I think they're supposed to be like 6 and 8 or 8 and 10. There's a nebulous aspect to their ages, which I think is both important... And also a product of the multiple revisions that James did to the book. I read Mm -hmm. in a couple spots that the children's ages changed as he edited the book. (laughs) So, oops. They seem to get a little bit older as the book goes on, which is weird. 
But anyway, well, I mean, people age naturally over the course. No, of time. but it doesn't. It doesn't seem to take up that. It doesn't seem to take up much more than a couple months. Um, okay. So it wouldn't. It feels like they age like in terms of years. Okay. Um, but anyway, so she's taking care of these kids. She starts seeing people, specifically two figures, a man and a woman, and as she describes them to the housekeeper it becomes clear that she is seeing apparitions of the former governess, Mrs. Miss Jessel, and a man named Peter Quint, uh, who I think worked as a servant. Uh, they had an illicit affair together, and there's also the implication that they might have gotten into some untoward activity with the children that it might have been some sort of sexual abuse happening or something like that. It's never really stated. Um, and the whole thing is that no one else has seen them, but the housekeeper believes the unnamed governess, the main character. And the governess, for some reason, thinks the children can see them, but the children, she never asks them. That would be inappropriate and a ter- terrible thing to do. And she thinks that the children won't react because they don't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like she instinctively knows that these ghosts are here to talk to these children, um, which is weird. And then, you know, the cor- over the course of the book, these ghosts keep reappearing to her, and she is not sure what's, what's real. or Well, she's, concern- she's convinced that they are real, actually. Sorry. Um, but she has no proof. She's got to prove it to everyone. She's got to save these kids. Mm-hmm. And then there's one incident where one of the, the little girl disappears and then they find her out by the lake and the one of the ghosts shows up again and it becomes clear that only the governess can see the ghosts, which is pretty terrible. And so they take the girl away and then it ends with her and the little boy in a room talking about stuff and the guy ghost shows up and... Then the boy dies. And that's it. So, oops, I spoiled the whole book. <laughs> so, wait, who are, the, who are the ghosts supposed to be? Like, how are they? What's their so, connection to the children? So, the female ghost is the prior governess. Okay. Miss Jessel. And okay. then her lover, who was a servant oh, right, for right, the house, right, right. Yeah, named Peter Quint. There's, like, an amusing little passage where they're like, who was he? He was an actor. Oh, no. And, you know... God forbid he be an actor, and his his name is Peter Quint, which is kind of reminiscent of Peter Quint's from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. So I think that might be on purpose. I'm not sure. Um, and they may or may not have had some sort of sexual relationship with the children, yeah. or at least right. specifically Peter Quint and the boy Miles. Um, Eek. So that's that. We'll, go, we'll we'll get back to the ghosts in a second. But to get to your bit about the language. Yeah. Oh my god, it's just I I think I initially chalked it up to being very proper if that makes sense. Like it fits what my mind's ear assumes 19th century British is. Sure, just like a certain style of of writing and of expressing ideas. Yeah, and very roundabout ways of there's so many commas in this book. There's just so many <laughs> dependent clauses. And it's funny cuz as I'm do, I'm reading this book as I'm like prepping and teaching some Shakespeare classes. And I was kind of thinking that it's a similar, like you have to work through a lot of the sentences, um, but it's almost 
harder to do in James than it is in Shakespeare. Um, so there's, a, but back to your point of whether or not this actually serves a purpose. I think that in this one moment it did, and I'll read it for you in just a second. Um, but other times I don't think it did. So this is one of the sightings that the governess has. And she's like, this passage kind of starts slowly and you don't know why she's even spending all this time talking about it. And she's talking about how she was making these gloves. And she's like, oh, I got I forgot to get my gloves before we go to church. Hold on, I'll be right back. And here it goes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches and that had received them with a publicity perhaps not edifying, while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays, by exception, in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. Like, what is she talking about? Why is she spending all this time talking about gloves? Why do I care about these gloves? And then it gets to, a couple of lines later, it gets to, one step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there. The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. So it's like there's this super dense language, and then all of a sudden there's a ghost in the room. And I, I imagine if you were if you were saying this out loud, that might provide a really nice like bum 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 kind of moment. Like you build up suspense with this dense language, and then all of a sudden a ghost jumps out of it. You know. Yeah, but I mean, this was written down primarily. It wasn't. It wasn't like a Beowulf thing where it was intended to be read out loud, and we're kind of putting it on the in like a non-native medium. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. It, 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 as we were saying earlier, it was published in kind of literary magazines and stuff. Um, so it is. I don't know. I feel like I'm trying to give it. I'm trying to have a benefit of the doubt of why it sure, works. Sure, and that's and that's fine. Um, but it, so, yeah. like, do you, do you do you think that text like that is just filler, or do you think it's kind of, um, kind of just you know describing something mundane and then throwing the supernatural into it? Do you think that like creates suspense or like serves some some literary or narrative purpose? I think in that moment it serves a narrative purpose. I ser- it serves a structural purpose of setting you up for one thing and then giving you another. I think there are plenty of times where it really is. It's just long winded and is not a way that we speak anymore mm-hmm. or write anymore. Um, it does. It just feels very <sighs> proper to a fault, I suppose. Um, like, oh God, I'm trying to find a good, just use the word lugubriously. I'm just like leafing through this. Um, so yeah, I don't know that it is necessarily always serving a purpose. I think it's just how James is writing. Um, there's a spot later where she kind of talks about this truth. She talks about truth a lot, and it's the truth of either the evil of the that is trying to inhabit these children, or the truth of whatever went on with Miles, which I'll get back to in a second. Um, But here's like another passage that could have probably been much more simply written. I had then expressed what was vividly in my mind, the truth that whether the children really saw or not, since that is, it was not yet definitely proved, I greatly preferred as a safeguard the fullness of my own exposure. I was ready to know the very worst that was to be known. It's like, I think she's just trying to say that she's... She doesn't care if the kids have seen it. 
<laughs> and that's not the point. It's enough to know that she's seen it, and that's what gives her like the courage to keep going with this mystery kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't definitely doesn't sound like that. <laughs> like it's yeah, like it sounds like it just it doesn't just come out and say stuff. Like it dances around it for a while and then says it. Well, and I think that might be endemic. I don't know if that's a, a cultural thing of the era or not, because a lot of the dialogue is very roundabout and they don't talk about things head on. And that's, I don't know that that's necessarily like a choice by James. I think that might just be a, that's kind of a Victorian trope that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's this sense of impropriety. Like a lot of things don't get done because of impropriety. She can't just ask the kids if they see the ghosts or not because she's their governess and that would be improper. She can't mm-hmm. just straightforwardly ask the little boy why he was sent home from boarding school and why he doesn't want to go back because that would be inappropriate. Um, you know, she can't talk to the housekeeper a certain way or the housekeeper, they talk about like, they talk about, oh my God, the boy was bad. And they don't even like, like they don't elaborate <laughs> on it. And they have to be this, very careful with the words they choose. So that, I think that's just, I know I feel there are times where it feels very Downton Abbey, for lack of a better word, you know, for, for frame <laughs> of reference in terms of like, you have to choose your words carefully because of class and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, that just sounds, I don't know, that sounds counterproductive. Like if you're in charge of this kid and you can't like talk to him about why he came home from boarding school and doesn't want to go back like you're missing some pretty crucial information that would be helpful for the purposes of child rearing yeah and and to get at to get into a more specific discussion of of what the book's themes are the implication by the end of the book at least to the the kids admission is that he was maybe coming on to girls in school okay and so this is where I'm like, is he eight? Is he 10? Is he like 13? I don't know. But everything that she says about him is that he's incredibly intelligent. And so there's that okay. era of the like creepy, way too smart kid from every horror movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's also perfect. So like, okay. what could he possibly have done? Yada, yada, yada. Um and he says later that he like he said things and she's like you said things and you don't you know and he said them to people <laughs> and then they said those things to people they liked and you know, somehow it got back to whoever um so and he kind of implies earlier in the book that he wants to go back to school now cuz he wants to be with people that he likes kind of thing um and because they don't talk about it head on, there's the sense that it is something very inappropriate and probably has something to do with sex. Yeah. And all of that kind of gets wrapped up in her trying to save him from this ghost that she's seeing that at least accuse, accusations from the housekeeper imply that he did something sexual with the boy. So there's this like, yeah, so is like that the way that the ghosts is that one way that the ghosts kind of hang over the action of the story is that whatever these people got up to with this little boy is like informing his bad behavior now or what? Yeah, that's that's the idea, um, and that there's an evil you know in them or trying to consume them, 
And it's not that the governor, the governess doesn't know that that's what it is. She doesn't know, oh, it's the sex demons. She just thinks it's, <laughs> she just thinks it's like evil incarnate kind of going after them. Um, or that these terrible people, they're, you know, their ghosts are hanging around and are going to come after them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the takeaway, if these ghosts are real, is that the evil is wrapped up in, in that. It's in, it's in the, the sexual behavior. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was interesting kind of reading up on the book afterwards, because it is, it's like, James frames it as a ghost story, which I think most ghost stories take for granted that the ghost is real, right? Sure. And then that's just supposed to scare you or make you think about other things. Whereas if he had just kind of written it without that frame narrative, it might be a bit more of the like unreliable narrator thing. But for, I don't know a lot of unreliable narrators from, you know, the 19th century. I don't know if you can think of any. Um, that seems no. like a very 20th century thing to do. And maybe this, this is on the cusp of that anyway. So, yeah. And it, I don't know, but like by framing it as a story, you kind of, like you said that, you know, maybe the frame is used to increase the legitimacy of the story, but I don't know. My mind kind of went the opposite direction is like by framing this as a story and not like you're framing it as a story within the story instead of it just being a story. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of got to wonder, yeah, if there is some element of, of unreliability in the, in the, you know, the layer in between the reader and the actual ghost story. Yeah. That's, that's Does actually, that that's actually a really good point. The idea that because it is not just a self-sufficient world in which there are ghosts, right? It is a story in, it is a world in which people tell ghost stories. Yeah. And this is a story t that has been written down by someone else in that. That's a, that's an interesting point because mm -hmm. as I said, the boy, the boy tries to see the ghost at the end, but he doesn't, you don't ever get the sense, you don't know if he ever saw the ghost ever. Um, the little girl claims to have never seen anything. The housekeeper never sees anything. Um, and the governess is undaunted by that. She just thinks that that just means they're unwilling to see it kind of thing, or they're unwilling to admit that they've seen it. Sure. Um, and she goes, she goes to the end of the book. The last line of the book is that the, the boy isn't alive. Like there's no follow up on what happened to this woman, to this governess. Cause she doesn't die. I is she committed to an asylum? I don't know. Who knows? Um, <laughs> the implication from the frame narrative is the guy Douglas knew this woman and she had written this all down in a manuscript and given it to him. And that's all you hear about it. Um, did she write it down while she was in a, a prison? Who knows? <laughs> I think there's actually like a book. I think there's a Sherlock Holmes story where he investigates this. Oh, really? Yeah, which I think is kind of neat. Um, yeah, put that on our list if we ever start um, do getting into like follow-ups yeah, to books yeah. that we've read. I, I just think, I don't know. I don't know what to think initially about the what, the the veracity of it. I kind of went into the book knowing about that central question, and I don't think it needs to be solved necessarily. 
I thought I wasn't sure what I was going to get by the end in terms of like, do I need to know if these ghosts are really there? <laughs> like, I don't know. That that's the point. What I was actually tracking while I was reading it was trying to track what happens in her mind because it's all told in the first person. Yeah. So you do get a sense of her like, I guess she's pretty certain she's seeing them. Like she's never, ever doubting that she's seeing them. It's actually really interesting to hear what's going on in her mind when she's seeing these kids and thinking that the kids are seeing them too. And like putting that projecting onto other people, her own paranoias, which is kind of neat. Um, mm-hmm. After the, the issue with the little girl where they, where the little girl doesn't see the ghost and then gets really sick for whatever reason. And she sends her away with the housekeeper. There's like a couple paragraphs where she's walking through the house like and the little boy is somewhere else in the house and all the servants and stuff she remarks about how they don't know how to even talk to her right now because they know that they're pretty sure that she's crazy (laughs) (laughs) um and it's just kind of interesting to get that point of view because you're getting it from the potentially crazy person's point of view um but she's never she never doubts it which is could potentially be why she's crazy or yeah, could potentially be um, why it's real, you know. Like, do the ghosts, and maybe, I, mean, I don't know, maybe we've gone over this, I'm just trying to keep everything straight, yep. but do, like, do the ghosts interact directly with anybody ever, or do they just kind of hang around? They just hang around. They don't... Because, like, maybe I'm reading stuff into stuff, like, it's totally possible that this is not something that an author in that time period would have been would have been doing, but, like... Do the ghosts like symbolize the actions of this of of the you know the people they represent or in, in the way that they're kind of hanging around and subtly influencing events or what? They seem to crop up in bad times, like but they don't do anything, you know. Okay. And they're they're not cropping up there's nothing sexual or anything happening over the course of the story. So it's not like they're showing up to highlight moments like that. And they're not even showing up when anybody's being particularly bad either. Um, They just kind of seem to haunt her specifically. And I I think the one thing that kind of, if I'm remembering the sequence of events properly, is she sees one of them before she even knows the story about them or knows who they are. And so I know there's a cu- there are a couple critics, uh, just in terms of brief reading up on this book, that I found, that I saw quotes of, that for them that explains why it's much more of a true ghost story, because how could she have known what these things looked like, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But every interaction she has with the housekeeper is very much like a... When you talk to someone who is kind of paranoid about something and they basically see everything in the world as fitting into that theory like you know like basically any any detail that is described to her about these people fits it's a kind of a blank slate scenario like you're not yeah and i think you get into that with like conspiracy theorists and stuff who like every every plausible explanation for why their viewpoints are false actually feeds and they like turn it around and make it make it a reason why their viewpoints are actually more valid than ever before yeah see every area 51 theory kind of thing so she, yeah. yeah she's like got some is it confirmation bias is that the right it's it is 
in a way, I think it's a much more extreme version of confirmation bias. But yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what confirmation bias is. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The ghosts, that's a, that is one thing that is interesting and kind of keeps it in that realm of the, keeps that question alive throughout the book is that the ghosts never act out. They only serve to be there to terrorize the governess. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of keep a little bit of distance from her once you start questioning if it's real or not because you're not like worried that the ghosts are going to do something to her because you just don't know that they can do anything at all. Yeah, uh, like there's no there's no evidence that suggests that they can do anything at all. No, no, not at all. They just show up and then stand there and she sees them and then yeah. they're horrifying and then if she's around other people she interprets every look on their on their face as you know whatever their reaction to the ghost is <laughs> you know right and that's like the fact that we're getting all of this from like from her eyes actually makes me be- believe less that the ghosts are real yeah because like we've only got a single source for this mm-hmm. and maybe she's <laughs> and maybe she's crazy like yeah it's kind of interesting how little you don't get a lot of her backstory there's something early on that she had some potentially some sort of falling out with her father or that he treated her poorly and i guess if you wanted to you could read into that into in terms of the the kind of sexual issues that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. there's a little bit of they dance around whether or not she was attracted to the man who hired her and whether or not she took this job thinking that she would get to be with him kind of thing or she has had feelings for him. Um, but that goes away and doesn't really get referenced very often. Um, so you don't really know a lot about her either. And I think that's also part of the point is that you're really just confronted with this setting, these bizarre little children um and the the housekeeper and then some ghosts it, that's really it um it's it's kind of sounds like this book is um it informs a lot of the ghost story tropes that we're still living with you know to this day like creepy precocious kids check yep like old old buildings check <laughs> <laughs> well and i think old <laughs> i think old buildings for lack of a better word for the trope i think that was already present at the times James was writing it. Oh, is that like a Poe thing or yeah, something? Yeah, like yeah. a Victorian. I think thing? what what lends credence to some Gothic, of the people. Yes, what I'm lends saying. credence to some of the people suggesting that it is a true and true ghost story is how heavily it uses that imagery. But again, confirmation bias. You could make the same argument that he's he's loading all of this imagery into it on purpose. Because that could feed into her paranoia, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There only one of the few moments where I think it's pr- I think it's a lot clearer about the fact that she's not reliable is she's with Miles and she's talking with him late at night. Um, it's a little later in the book when she's already like really far into I don't know what's happening and oh god. Um, and she goes into his room, and he confesses to her something about wanting to go back to school. And 
she's dancing around whether or not she's going to talk to him about these ghosts or whatever, or if he's ever going to tell her what he did at school to get expelled. And they, there's a moment between them. And then like, she says there's a chill in the room and it's a blast of cold haunting air or whatever. And it blows out the candle and you know, they're thrust into darkness and she, I don't know if she just exclaims loudly or whatever, wondering what happened. And then the little boy is just like, I blew out the candle. And that's like the end of that chapter. And then they move on. <laughs> so you get the sense that she is making mountains out of molehills left and right. Yeah. Um, at least from that moment. There are other spots where it's a little more like the kids are not where they're supposed to be. And you can almost see that they might be conspiring around her. That kind of sense is very interesting throughout the book of the like not understanding what children are up to sometimes and that and maybe not quite being scared of them but you're like your fear for them gets mixed in with like not knowing how they're reacting to you or not knowing the best way to take care of them or to talk about things um especially when they're not your children i guess i'm responding to that as as someone who you know, does after school work with kids sometimes. It's just like, I don't know what you need. I don't know what's freaking you out. Why are you being the way that you are? Um, <laughs> there, there are plenty of moments of that in this book where she's like trying to discern what's going on in their faces and they're not reacting how they, how she expects them to react. Um, and then the fact that the quote unquote evil in the book is wrapped up with like sexual maturity or, you know, sexual abuse or all, you know, things that, something that is both uh, incredibly important in life, but also can be incredibly traumatic. Um, I think that that plays into all of the concerns about taking care of children and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like, sounds like she's crazy. (laughs) Sounds like chick is crazy. Sounds like she's crazy. Yeah. All right. We, we solved it. We solved the mystery. We solved it. The woman's crazy. There's no ghosts. No ghosts at all. Um, you heard it here first. And <laughs> that said, I mean, save for the dense language, I really enjoyed it. I think it just it's and and this is like the well, it's not quite the opposite of of Dune, which we read last week. But um, it sounds like there's a lot of book here, but it's not it doesn't it's not saying a ton. Whereas Dune is like, it's a lot of book and it's like, there's just so much flying around and so many moving pieces all the time that it gets kind of overwhelming. Well, I don't know. I I think that it's saying one thing. It's much more of a, it's a slim novel. It's, I mean, it's like 120 pages or something like that. Um, It just feels dense because of the language. Oh, I think it, I I think overall it actually feels much more like a short story. And I was kind of expecting that going in and then was confronted with paragraphs that I did not want to slog through. Just like walls of clauses. Yeah. You know. And I can't. Oh, God. I I had made her a receptacle of lurid things, but there was an odd recognition of my superiority in her patience under my pain. She offered her mind to my disclosures as had I wished to mix a witch's broth and proposed it with assurance, she would have held out a large, clean saucepan. I don't know what the heck she's talking about. Wow. Yeah. And I kind of... Eventually, we're going to have to hire people. (laughs) That's what we can do with all the English majors is we can, like, 
have them translate a hundred years ago English to now English. <laughs> so we can still like use the stories as cultural touchstones, but not yeah. have to do all the work. Like yeah, right. the number of times I had to look up the word abjure as I was reading through just like <laughs> when a what does book it mean? unironically uses the word perambulations. Ooh. Yeah, that's a rough one. I was walking around. That's what she could have said. I was walking around. I don't even know around. what. I don't even know what erstwhile means. <laughs> like I'm way out of my depth. Uh, so I was expecting something a little slimmer than what ended up happening in the language, but I think the story itself is really slick. It's pretty economical. Yeah, it's really economical, and I think that's why okay. it's been adapted a couple of times. Um, and it's cited as an influence in that Nicole Kidman movie that came out a couple of years ago, The Others, where like. There's a house full of ghosts, but maybe they're not ghosts. Um, and she's taking care of children, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it, it plays in a lot of tropes that it's, again, like, I think one of the things we've been finding with this podcast is going back to books that have inspired a bunch of other things. Um, I think we're enjoying that when we hit on those. Uh, so I definitely think that's the case here. But yeah, prep yourself for some in capital E English, if you're going to read some Turn of the Screw, because <laughs> it is complicated. I found myself longing for dialogue sometimes. And even then, that was difficult because they they just don't ever talk about anything head on. And you have to like, inf you have to infer, I used the word correctly, you have yep, to infer you a lot of what they're meaning when they talk because they'll also they'll like clip sentences so they don't have to say anything too terrible <laughs> i don't know well that sounds really tiresome yeah um okay. but you know it's still cool i'm sorry yeah. i ruined the ending i guess there was no oh, way to fine. talk about it without ruining the ending right no well i mean the ending is they're not ghosts shut up well that's, no the, I think the, that's ending, the ending the ending is the boy i think the ending I, I, I thought we were wrapping this up but i'll say it real quick i think the ending is where the little boy uh, hears the governess kind of cry out about the ghost, and the little boy actually tries to see the ghost for himself. Okay. Is pretty interesting both ways, because it can kind of confirm, oh, maybe they're real, and maybe the, maybe the kid's going to see it. Or why the heck would the kid try to see the ghost in the first place, and now he's dead? <laughs> like, And it's pretty clear. I'm pretty clear pretty sure that the governess like just killed him by like holding on to him too hard and probably like snapping his neck or something okay or, or he had a stroke i don't know who who knows how old he was i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the 60 year old kid. 60 year old little boy um but yeah so if you read turn of the screw and are convinced that andrew and i are wrong about the ghosts not being real you can, as we said earlier, you can email your theories into overduepod at gmail.com or tweet them to at overduepod or write about them on Facebook. And uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, just search for overdue on Facebook yeah. and you'll find us. You can also We're there. find back episodes and links to our RSS feed at overduepodcast.com where you can also support us by clicking on books that you might want to buy or earlier episodes that maybe you want to go back to and listen haven't read the books it's a good way to yeah yeah us. we have uh, we have amazon links up for this week's episode and the next two as well as all you know all the previous episodes so if you want to read along with us or just um you know read one of these books and and just 
discovered just how much we're pretending to understand what's, co- <laughs> to understand what's going on. If that's on. not clear. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we would really appreciate if you go up and use those links. Um, also, on the website, we have a link to our iTunes store uh, feed. So if you wanted to go up there, subscribe, uh, rate us, and review us, that would be amazing. And, of course... Uh, the only way we're going to get bigger, I think, is by word of mouth. So uh, we would really appreciate it if you like our show, if you would recommend it to your friends and just, uh, you know, have them give us a try. Great. So yeah. thanks. And I think that's it. The ghosts aren't real. Go- no, no, they're not. Okay. Bye, everybody. Ghosts are real. <laughs> Thank you.